Welcome to another episode of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. My name is Larry Bobo, and I am Dean of the Social Sciences at Harvard University. My guest is Yuhua Wang, Professor of Government uh, here at Harvard. Welcome, Yuhua. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Dean Bobo. Uh, We are going to be talking about your new book, published by Princeton University Press in October, entitled The Rise and Fall of Imperial China, The Social Origins of State um, Development. Let me say at the top that I find this a really engrossing and uh, impressive work. Particularly impressive, I think, is the broad ambition that you set for this project. And indeed, you begin by saying, this is your dream work. <laughs> and what did you mean by that? And, and in, in what sense was this a great personal ambition for you? Well, it's nice to hear this from the dean, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you like it. Um, yeah, I had always been interested in history, even before I started working on this book. Um, I did my undergrad in China at Peking University. And then the way um, college admissions work in China is you need to apply for a major even when you are in high school. So, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to study, but I, I knew from all the classes I took in high school, I knew I had a heart in history. So I wanted to to study history in college. But then, so I applied for history as my first priority, uh, first preference in my college education, sorry, my college application. But then um, in China, they also have the national national entrance exam, which, uh, you know, will give you a grade. And then that grade will determine which major you can get in. So I was not able to get in my first major, which is history. Um, and then in that case, the university will have the authority to randomly assign me to a major, which is political science. So I was actually randomly assigned to political science and then um but then but that still, worked out well i know i know this is uh, quite a surprise i didn't expect actually to become a political scientist because political science in china is quite ideologically driven i was not quite interested in political science uh when i was in college but i always have this you know soft spot for history so i took a lot of history classes in the history department and then also later on i became a political scientist but always uh you know like to read history, pay attention to what historians are doing. So um, in 2014, when I sent the manuscript of my first book, which was on China's legal system to the publisher, I thought, you know, I'm done with my first book, uh, what's the next? And then um, I thought maybe this is the time to combine my real interest with my profession, you know, so to combine history with political science. So I thought maybe I can start studying Chinese history and then to answer some of the biggest questions in political science, which is, for example, state building. So I want to use the case of China to illuminate the case of state building. That's fantastic. And part of what I mean by the ambition of the work, at least as I look at it, is indeed that that disciplinary come theoretical breadth that you bring to this project, because it's not just history, it's not just political science, but you have also substantially folded in sociology and economics as well, at least those economists who think of themselves as political economists, right? I mean, they resonate throughout the book. Yeah, exactly. I really benefited from all the perspectives from different disciplines, you know, from uh, sociology, for example, I actually uh, self-taught myself uh, social network analysis. I got a syllabus from one of your colleagues, actually, in the sociology department, uh, uh, Peter Martinson. And then I studied, you know, how to do social science, um, social network analysis. They also, you know, benefit a lot from economists because they also have been studying um, economic history for a long time. So I, I read both fields and then I, I think I uh, learned a lot from well, and you deploy it very, very effectively and in a highly sophisticated manner, something we'll turn to in a moment. But one of the other things that struck me in terms of the broad ambition of the work is the time scale at which you've decided to operate, that you are essentially tackling a 2,000-year period, beginning almost at the dawn of the Common Era, marching right up to the early 20th century. Yeah, it's really started with uh, some frustration, actually, with the work that I read when I was preparing for this book. Uh, you know, I read a lot of historians' work. Um, they 
you know, they are fantastic, but they all focus on a specific dynasty or, you know, a specific locality within a very short period of time. I think it makes sense because they want to get enough archival materials as much as possible. So they want to focus on a short period of time. But then after reading, you know, maybe 100 books, I still left with the impression that I don't have this bigger picture of what China looked like uh, in the last 2,000 years, how the Chinese state was formed, how the Chinese state developed over time. So that's the motivation of this project. That is, I really want to get a bigger picture, an overview of what China looked like for a long period of time. Fabulous. And uh, it's part of what makes the book, I think, so uh, impactful, at least in, in my own eyes, and I suspect that of many others. But there's a third ambition here, I, I believe, driving what you uh, have done in uh, the rise and fall of imperial China. And that really is to, in a serious fashion, write China into our theories of the state. As you say early on uh, in the book, quote, the literature treats the European model of state development as the benchmark and asks why states in other regions have failed to follow suit. And you were, in many respects, out to correct that that uh, pattern of engagement. Exactly. That's another frustration I had when I was reading the literature in the social sciences, the literature on state development, on state formation has been very Eurocentric. They look at Europe um, and then they try to generate some generalizable stories. Um, about state formation. And then uh, the problem of that is um, there are many other world regions um, and they also have a long history. They have a very different trajectory of state development uh, compared with Europe. But also, I think the assumption in the literature um, that I was reading assumes that every other country in the developing world will follow whatever European countries has been doing. That is, every other country in Latin America, for example, in Asia, in the Middle East, um, will become Europe uh, once they become a more developed state. I think that that assumption is so wrong that we know that uh, you know every country has its own trajectory. And then, uh, especially for the country that I'm interested in, China, you know, China has a long, you know, over 3,000 years of recorded history. And then China had a very early state in terms of bureaucracy, uh, the hierarchy, um, so on and so forth. So I think there needs to be a story uh, about China. And then I think there's a potential contribution that they can make by telling the story of China. And another implication of what you're doing here, your, your intellectual project and contribution, is that China is not just another case. It's not just that you're now applying these other models to China, but China is an important case in its own right. And moreover, as you have worked with it, positions us to develop some broad, generally consequential reformulations of core theoretical ideas about the state, right? That was my ambition. Um, because previous scholars have focused on either international war uh, in the making of states or the role of political institutions like parliament. Um, but then I really think that we need to pay attention to the social structure in which the elites are embedded. Uh, and then we need to look at the incentives, the behavior, the actions that the elites and also the, the, the masses are taking, uh, depending on what type of social structure they're embedded in. I sound like a sociologist. No, now, I, I'm, I, think, I was just yeah. about to ask you, so <laughs> isn't that kind of a heretical position within political science? Say we need to be more sociological about how we understand. Well, we do have <laughs> a long tradition in political science. We call it political sociology. You know, my colleague say the Scotch Poe, um, you know, is is a leading scholar in that camp. And then you know, uh, people have been paying attention to society, social structure, social networks in politics. But I think it hasn't become the mainstream of political science. So I so I do think that I was um, taking a quite a different approach when I started this book. And you launch with what is also an empirical puzzle. And uh, the way you phrase the puzzle is, uh, why is it that some emperors who were quite short-lived in terms of their time in power 
often ruled what were very strong state structures, while a number of very long-lasting emperors governed comparatively weak state structures. And so what does it take to build an answer then to that puzzle? Exactly. I started with some observations. You know, I was reading history, and then um, that fact struck me. Uh, well, while I was reading, for example, China had, there was a Tang Dynasty in China from the 7th century to the 9th century, and then it is probably the strongest dynasty in Chinese history. And uh, also, Tang China was probably the strongest country in the world at the time, was the, you know, the superpower at the time. I think according to some of the recent estimates, Tang China occupied over one-fourth of the global GDP. So this is, a, you know, a global superpower, even stronger relatively than what the U.S. is today, because the U.S., I think the, the GDP of the USA occupies only one-sixteenth of the global GDP. So Tang China was, was a superpower. But then when I was reading Tang history, I was very surprised to see that many of the Tang emperors were assassinated, they were deposed, they were uh, forced to commit suicide. Uh, among the 12 late Tang emperors, five of them were deposed by the elites. And I was quite surprised to see that. So I, so I started to wonder why we see this contradiction that is in such a strong empire where the government could control the society, they have a strong military, they can fight uh, beautifully. They can collect a lot of taxes, but then the rulers were so vulnerable. And then I continue to read history until, for example, the last dynasty of Chinese history, which is the Qing dynasty. The Qing dynasty is exactly the opposite. The Qing dynasty, you know, is the last dynasty of imperial China. Uh, after that dynastic rule collapsed in China, uh, the Qing state was very weak. They didn't have a very strong army. They couldn't even fight with foreign enemies when the Opium War started, for example. They just couldn't fight with the British. And then they were not able to collect a lot of taxes. The government was weak. But then the Qing emperors uh, st sat on their thrones for, you know, decades. You know, two of them sat on the throne for more than 60 years, you know, very, very long. You know, they uh, they are probably uh, uh, two of the most, the longest reigning monarchs in world history. And so that contradiction really motivated me to think about what, you know, how to explain this, how to explain the contradiction between the fate of the rulers and then the fate of the Chinese government. And then I searched for different answers. You know, certainly I started with the conventional wisdom, you know, maybe war, maybe conflict, maybe, you know, climate, maybe geography, and then maybe culture. Um, but then the problem is many of those things don't change, right? You know, geography, culture, Many of the popular arguments that previous scholars uh, settled on uh, uh, do not change very much over time. So how do we explain, for example, such a big change from the Tang Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty? And then we have to look at something that changed over time. And then so I started going to the archives and then reading historians' work. And then uh, gradually, this is a very slow process. So gradually, after maybe two years or three years, um, I realized that many of the materials point to the same direction. That is, we need to pay attention to the social structure of the elites and then uh, how it changed over time and then also what kind of incentives the social structure gave to the elites in and different that, dynasties. And that leads you to begin to formulate an, an analytical framework, right? An analytical framework where you say, we really need to be thinking in terms of, of state development. Uh, this sort of uh, dynamic process in which states uh, may be defined in terms of different levels of strength and forms of um, organization. So maybe I could get you to sharpen for me what you mean by, by each of those things. State development, what are the elements of a strong state, and what are some of the key differences in in form that matter in, in your right. assessment? Um, when I started this, the terminologies that people often use are state formation or state building. Uh, I don't like either of those terms because I feel they sound like final. You know, state formation means, you know, once the state is formed, the story is over. You know, state building the same, right? You know, state is built. But then what I see in Chinese history is the constant change of both the form and also the strengths of the state. And then over a long period of time and then changing all the time is very fluid. It's very dynamic. So that's why I 
prefer to use the word of state development in this book. And then, um, and then by um, by state development, I really focus on two things. One is the form of the state, and then by form of the state, I mean one is the relationship between the ruler and then the elites. You know, whether the ruler is one among equals. For example, this is, you know, we're talking about an emperor, but the emperor has, uh, you know, some power, but then the emperor is really not um, much more powerful than other elites. Uh, this is one form, right? The other form is the emperor is just much more powerful than other elites. And this is, you know, dominant. Um, the other dimension of state form is the relationship between state and society. So whether the state can dominate the society, for example, in terms of public goods provision, um, national defense, is the state playing a leading role in those functions? For example, is the uh, state army um, the leading army in defending the country? Or actually, um, the state has to collaborate with the society in national defense or public goods provision. You know, in, in, in many dynasties in China, the Chinese state had to collaborate with the local gentry class, the so-called local landowning elites in providing public goods and also in defending the country. And then so that's um, the dimensions I'm looking at. So whether, uh, the you know, in terms of the relationship between the ruler and the elites and also the relationship between the state and society. So those are the two dimensions I'm looking at in terms of the form of the state. But then I'm also interested in the strengths of the state, uh, which is uh, called by political scientists as state capacity. So the, the capacity of the state to implement its official goals. And then usually we think of state capacity as a function in which the state can uh, transform its resources to policies. For example, you know, if the state wants to achieve certain goals, for example, you know, conscription or education, whether the the government can use the resources that they have to achieve the goals they want to achieve. So those things are what we call state capacity. So what I I'm interested in in this book is to explain both. So the change of the form of the state, so the relationship between the ruler and then the elites, the relationship between state and society, but also the changes in the strengths of the state in terms of whether the state can use its resources to achieve its goals. Okay, okay great. But uh, indulge me for one moment here, and that's to help sharpen the distinction, which you've already done a lot to help me understand better than just my first run through the book of the distinction between state and society, and particularly uh, if you could unpack that term society. Uh, are, we, are we talking about institutions that are more at the, at the meso level, or are they really at the, I mean, are we talking families, communities? It sounds as though you're often talking a little bit above that level when you're saying society in term and how it is distinct from state right. actors. Um well, I define society as a web of relations. It's really, you know, a network, I think. And then in the book, I really focus on the local elite families and then their relationship with each other. So that's my focus of the book. Okay. And so then a critical aspect of the argument you construct is indeed then about the elite social terrain and the way in, in particular in which elites very proximate to, to national government, the central or highest level of, of government, um, connect to one another and connect to the, the leader, the kind of ruling figure. So, um, but then part of what you're interested in there, of course, as you say, are the networks, the degree of interconnection um, among these elites and not just their kind of interpersonal or familial interconnection, right? But also their geographic span, kind of how they're organized uh, uh, in, in geographic space. And you end up identifying three kind of ideal type social, uh, elite social network arrangements. One sort of a, a, a star-shaped, another one more of a bow tie shape, and another more of a circular shape, and that each of those end up being bound up with or or uh, connected to the evolution of a particular mode of, of governance. Exactly. Right? So um, the three ideal types include 
a star network and then a bow tie network and then what I call a ring network. So in the star network, um, the elites in the national government, so we are looking at politicians who work in the capital. Uh, in the star network, the central politicians are connected with each other with social ties. And then in the book, I focus on intermarriages. So someone's daughter is married to someone else's uh, son. Uh, and then I would count that as connected. And then also at the same time, um, like you mentioned, I also pay attention to the geographic span of the network. That is, you know, whether the central politicians can use the marriage ties to connect with local elite families that are located in different geographic locations in the country, right? And then in the star network, what's the key characteristic of the star network is the dispersed geographic network that the central politicians have. That is, the, every central politician is able to use marriage ties to connect with local families located in different geographic locations, in the north, in the south, in the west, in the east. And then that's uh, the star network. And then in the bowtie network, the central politicians are not connected with each other. You know, their sons and daughters are not intermarried with each other. Therefore, there's a bow tie and then there's a gap in the middle of the bow tie. But then at the same time, each of the central politicians is connected with the local elite families uh, located in only one geographic location. For example, you know, this central politician, you know, his daughters or his sons uh, married to the families only in the West. And then the other politician married only to the, um, in the East. And then that makes a bow tie network. And then the last one is the ring ring network. And then in the ring network, there's no connections between the central politicians. There are just, you know, scattered thoughts, but also they don't have any connections with the local elite families. So there's, a, you know, there's the thought in the, cen in the center and then the, the elite families in, dif in different corners of the empire are connected with each other. For example, they're, local, they're all local families. They marry each other, but they do not have connections with the central politicians. And those different configurations of um, elite networks and geography play a big part in structuring what you term the sovereign's dilemma. So what, what is the sovereign's dilemma? Yeah, the sovereign's dilemma is the idea that for a ruler, if you want to maximize your own power, you have to fragment the elites because if you have a coherent elite, they will be able to take collective action to depose you. So to stay in power, the ruler needs to have a fragmented elites. But then as a consequence, when you have a fragmented elites, the elites will have trouble getting together to make policies, to make the country stronger. So therefore, if you think about, you know, for every ruler, they have two goals, right? One is to have a lot of personal power. They want to consolidate his their own monarchical power. The other goal is to have a strong government so that they can collect off tax, taxes, but also defend their own country. The argument is, the dilemma is, they cannot achieve both goals at the same time. Because if you want to have a strong country, you need to have a coherent elite. But then when you have a coherent elite, they will assassinate you, right? So, and then you cannot stay in power for a very, very long time. So you can either stay in power for a very long time, or you can have a very strong government, but you cannot have both. That's the dilemma. And so before we turn to how that then ties into different modes of, of governance and uh, the duration that, that kind of each uh, in, enjoyed, let me point out one of the things that I found most remarkable um, and impressive, really compelling about the book, and that is that you end up drawing upon and indeed creating some very unique data sources uh, uh, to do this work. That is, you're not just crafting an analytical narrative, but, but fundamentally your argument is resting upon some new, very strong, empirical, quantitative work and you end up extracting um, very creative, new, powerful, revealing sources of data. I mean, you're you're drawing on uh, or creating, I guess, a data source on all of the Chinese emperors, uh, longitudinal um, uh, and geo-referenced uh, data on some 7,000-plus military conflicts, uh, geo-reference data on over, you know, um, uh, 
50,000 or or uh, more uh, records uh, for a thousand year uh, period of a genealogical character um, and working through other biographical data sets on elites, uh, marriage records, kinship patterns, uh, including, I mean, coding information off of, and I was totally unfamiliar with this until your book, sort of tomb epitaphs for um, elite figures. Um, talk to me about that as an aspect of your endeavor here, as an aspect of of you as a scholar, kind of with a problem, with a curiosity, with a training, then kind of going into the archive and saying, how do I, how do I pull together the facts that speak to the puzzle I'm trying to put together? <laughs> well, I should really thank the dynastic government in China, you know, which documented all the uh, biographies, you know, the Chinese. Um, Imperial government, you know, even 2,000 years ago, did a really good job at documenting events and also key persons in the government. So, you know, that's how I found the data. But I think in terms of, you know, the uh, the data sources, you know, there's a story about this that is uh, about 15 years ago when I was a graduate student at the University, uh, at the University of Michigan, I was working on my dissertation, which was on contemporary China, but I... Um, went to China to do fieldwork. I went to the city of Xi'an. It is one of the oldest capitals of China. And uh, I went to downtown Xi'an, and then there's a museum there. Uh, the museum had an amazing collection of tomb stones. Some of them are from a thousand years ago. Some of them are from hundreds of years ago. And then I was wandering in the museum, and then I was reading what's carved on the tombstone. And then uh, it really struck me that how much information we can actually get from that piece of limestone. And then, um, you know, usually they will have a lengthy eulogy carved on the tombstone, which survived over 100 years, you know, uh, over a thousand years. And then, um, so that that impression, that, uh, that trip, um, was a long time ago. I was not working on this book at the time, but then when I was starting to work on this book, that image of that tombstone suddenly came to my mind and then to remind me, actually, I can maybe uh, spend some time collecting data from the tomb epitaphs. Uh, and then um, that's how I started this project. So about eight years ago, I started very systematically collecting data from the archives, including the tomb epitaphs. And then many of them are actually documented, are digitized by the Chinese government. So I was able to collect the data very systematically. But then um, also the Chinese dynasty government, uh, every dynasty had the habit of writing the history of the previous dynasty because they want to learn what went wrong with their predecessors. They want to avoid the same fate. So the, they did a really good job at documenting all the key events and also the people. Very good, but it is one of the more e exciting uh, aspects of, of the work you, you've done here. In, in the core part of your, your argument, you sketch out basically three great epochs or phases of Chinese um, state development. And, and maybe it would be helpful for us to, to talk a bit through each of those. One of them you characterize as state strengthening under oligarchy, which really is in some respects um, exemplified by the, the, the Tang um, dynasty. So what do you see as kind of the defining characteristics of it and what in the end proved to be vulnerabilities that 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 open it to um, a big transition in effect to a new uh, mode of state organization right um, this is the beginning of the story in the book uh, this is the dynasty that started in the seventh century and then ended in the ninth century uh, called the Tang dynasty what we saw in the Tang dynasty is, on the one hand, a very strong government, right? Uh, they were able to collect a lot of taxation. They had a very strong standing army. They were able to expand the Chinese territories to the west, uh, to the south. And then, um, but then on the other hand, the Tang emperors 
like we mentioned before, were very vulnerable to elite um, assassinations, rebellions, so on and so forth. So, uh, and then that's something I would try to explain uh, what happened in that dynasty. And then uh, what I figured from both my data analysis, but also from the archival work is in the Tang dynasty, there was a group of aristocratic families, uh, no more than 200 families maybe. And then they, for generations, monopolized positions in the central government. Um, you know, their sons, their grandsons, they keep getting the top positions in the government. And then they also uh, live in the capital uh, because they all have to work in the capital. So they all move their houses to the capital area and then live there. So what we have in the Tang Dynasty is a concentration of a very close-knit network of noble families uh, who lived uh, in a very concentrated geographic location and then also who formed a very close-knit marriage network. So their sons and daughters married with each other, not also only with each other. They don't marry people outside the aristocracy. And then, so what ended up having uh, in the Tang Dynasty was this very well-connected aristocratic network of 200 families uh, where they trust each other, uh, they can coordinate, they can take collective action when they try to, for example, depose the emperors, they were able to do this. Um, uh, but also at the same time, because of their coordination, because of their trust with each other, they were also able to push for policies that make the Chinese government stronger. For example, in the book I talk about, there was this one tax reform in the 8th century, which was very, very difficult. It's about you know imposing higher taxes on the landowners and then most of the aristocratic families owned a lot of land. And then we're talking about, you know, the uh, the politicians making a policy actually to tax them more, which is quite surprising. And then the argument is because they have connections with families all over the country, because they marry local elite families all over the country, they can actually benefit it from benefit from a strong central government because a strong central government can protect their family interests that are scattered in the whole um whole empire. And then that's why, you know, the reform succeeded very smoothly. But then at the same time, the coherence of the aristocratic families also made the Tang rulers very vulnerable. And so what then precipitates a big transformation or, or a move to uh, the next kind of dominant mode of, of organizing? And I know this is a segment where you talk a lot about the influence of external shocks, in effect, to the social system, where uh, change in climate can produce uh, different sets of, of vulnerabilities uh, for for uh, both opportunities, resources, and vulnerabilities for um, a state. And that has some bearing on uh, the vulnerability to external actors, or I would presume just as well, internal sources of rebellion or, or contestation. Right. Uh, so the temperature in the northern hemisphere fluctuated dramatically in the last 2,000 years. And then um, what I found in my data is that there's a very strong correlation between temperature anomalies and then the frequency of mass rebellions. And then um, usually in the cold years, famine was more likely and then peasants were more likely to rebel. And then in the late Tang Dynasty, um, China had one of the coldest years in the last 2,000 years. And then there was a large-scale mass rebellion called the Huang Chao Rebellion. It's named after the leader Huang Chao. Huang Chao was a salt merchant. And then he led the rebellion against the Tang Dynasty because there was drought, there was famine. Uh, and then probably because of the geographic concentration of the aristocratic families, you know, so they, they all live in the capital area. That concentration made them very vulnerable to rebellions because when the rebels conquered the capital city, the rebels were able to physically kill all the aristocratic families simply because they were all there. They were all, you know, in the same city at the same time. So, you know, their vulnerability really came from their concentration. And then that really ended the era of 
the star network. That is this whole star network where, you know, the central EDs are connected with each other, but also the central EDs were able to connect with the local families ended during the Huangchao Rebellion, where they were all killed. And then that led to the next phase of Chinese history. And this starting in the 10th century, and then this is called the Song Dynasty. Um, when the Song emperors came to power, they realized the challenge was how should we recruit bureaucrats since now we don't have an aristocracy to choose from. You know, before the Song, it's very easy. You just choose the sons and grandsons from those 200 families. But starting in the 10th century, the emperors need to figure out a new way to choose bureaucrats. And then they started to systematically use a great Chinese invention. This is the imperial civil service examination systems. And then the the exam started in the 6th century, 10, uh, 7th century, but then wa- was not systematically used because there was this nobility who didn't like the exams. And then so uh, the exams were not relied upon before the Song Dynasty. But starting in the 10th century, the Song Emperor started to systematically rely on the civil service exams to choose bureaucrats. And then that institutional change had a major impact on the social structure of the Chinese elites. That is, uh, since the Song Dynasty onward, because of the importance of education, because of the importance of investment in education, local families started to hold land. They started to, you know, um, stay in one place. They started to hold land in that one place. They started to, you know, be able to generate income from the land they're holding uh, in the hope that they can use the income to invest in their sons' and grandsons' education so that they can take the civil service examination system to become bureaucrats and then to generate more income. So land holding became a very important characteristic of the Chinese elites starting in the 10th century. And then that means starting from that time on, the Chinese elites need to stay in one place. They're tied to one locality. And then their land holding incentivized them to build connections with the local neighbors because they want to protect their land in that place and they want to build their powerhouse in that locality. So uh, this is what the historians call the localist turn of Chinese elites. That is from the Tang times when the elites, they're all centralized, they all stay in the capital, they connect with families in all over the country to the Song Dynasty where the elites uh, stay in one place, they build marriage networks with their local neighbors rather than people from far away, right? And then that dramatically changed the incentives, the the worldview of Chinese elites. Um, And then in the book, I argue that even though um, the sons and grandsons uh, is, you know, it's it's, it's gender biased and they don't have women in the civil service exams. So so only men can take the exams. Their sons and grandsons can take the exams. Sometimes they can succeed. They go to the capital to work in the national government, but their interests are tied to the locality where their families are. And then they care about their local interests, they care about their families. Their preference when they make policies is to direct the resources of the central government to their own localities to make sure their families can benefit from those resources. So um, that dramatically changed the behavior of the Chinese elites in the Song Dynasty. And then I talk about some reforms in the... um, the 11th, there were one. Uh, sorry, there was one reform in the 11th century. There was um, another reform in the 17th century. In both reforms, the central politicians were not thinking about the interests of the central government. They were actually paying more attention to the local interest. So they actually want to block those reforms that were designed to strengthen the national government. And this then also um, becomes an era in which. Uh, rulers, the central figure, have greater durability, right? Greater longevity. Exactly. This is because when the sons and grandsons of the local landowning elites go to the capital to work, they don't know each other, uh, you know, because they all marry locally. They know their local neighbors, but they don't know other people who come to the capital to work with them. And then, so therefore, I show that their networks are much more fragmented starting in the Song Dynasty. And then they were not able to coordinate with each other. They were not able to trust each other. They were not able to take collective actions, even though they try to maybe to 
undermine the power of the monarchs, but they were not able to. And uh, so you, you termed this the state maintaining under partnership form of, of uh, state development. But it, too, um, uh, runs into a challenge uh, that, that opens it to a, a moment of collapse and, and transition. So what is it that then takes us to the state weakening uh, under warlordism form of organization. Right. So for a long time from the Song dynasty, which is the 10th century to uh, the early Qing dynasty, which is about 18th century, you know, for about 800 years, uh, China was quite stable. It was very peaceful. Uh, the government was able to collaborate with the local landowning elites uh, in providing public goods, for example, local irrigation, roads, education, dikes, so on and so forth, but also in defense. That is when uh, there were mass rebellions, but also occasionally when there were foreign enemies, uh, the Chinese government was able to mobilize the local landowning elites uh, and then to um, fight with the foreign enemies using the private militia. So that has been working really well for about 800 years. But uh, unfortunately, what happened is uh, with the Industrial Revolution, Europe became stronger. And then now Europe's weapons um, technologies were far more advanced than China's at, at the same time in the 18th century, 19th century. And then uh, so in the 19th century, China started to encounter this stronger foreign world, right? Uh, so the Opium War, for example, happened in the mid-19th century and then uh, Japan also became stronger in the 19th century. So China started to face a stronger world. So the traditional mode in which the Chinese government was able to maintain, you know, this collaboration with the local landowning elites worked until that point. That is, you know, until the 19th century, um, this model of a collaboration with the society could work. But then with a stronger foreign enemy, with the West coming into China, uh, the Chinese government was no longer able to, for example, found a stronger army. Uh, they were they didn't have a strong national standing army, but also they didn't have the financial resources to provide public goods, uh, uh, to mobilize the society, to defend the country. And then that's when things went wrong. So in the 19th century, uh, after the Opium War, after a mass rebellion in China, it's called the Taiping Rebellion, because the Qing government was so weak, during the rebellion, they had to delegate the local defense to local landowning elites. And then the local landowning elites realized that they can no longer rely on the central government. So they all formed their own private militia. So during the Taiping Rebellion, it's really the local private militias led by the local gentry class, which defended the country, which fought with the Taiping rebels. And then, but that's a turning point in Chinese history because once the central government delegated the defense responsibility to the local elites, it really, um, what happened is what Max Weber called the, uh, the Chinese government really lost the monopoly over violence, right? So the so Chinese government lost the control of the means over violence to the local elites. And then that, led to the formation of what I call a ring network. That is, um, local elites in the rebellion started to form those coalitions. They started to connect with each other. But then also the central government started to lose the connection with the society. They lose the connections with the local families. And then you start to see a ring type network in the late Qing era. And um, that brings us in some respects up to the end of the historic era. That, that's kind of the focus of, of your analysis here. But I want to draw out at least two, maybe three other strands from uh, where you've taken us in this story, which is maybe first to go back to the issue of theories of the state and theories of state development and maybe get you now in, in the light of this information and this argument to talk about how your work now really recasts how we should be thinking about state development. The 
traditional wisdom on this is, you know, based on the European story, is you can get a strong state and a strong ruler at the same time, right? This is what happened in Europe. Um, according to research, uh, that the European rulers were able to stay in power for a very, very long time. Um, starting in the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, they, they, they enjoyed the stability. But at the same time, the European states also got stronger in terms of taxation, the power to mobilize society, so on and so forth. And then um, the argument about why that happened in Europe is all focused on political institutions. That is, they argue parliament, for example, representative institutions, right, enabled the ruler to negotiate with the elites so that the elites didn't have to kill the rulers to achieve their goals, right? And the rulers can enjoy um, stability, but also the rulers were able to make a credible commitment to the elites to collect taxes. And that's why we see these two things happening together in a stronger ruler, also a stronger government. That's the conventional wisdom, right? Uh, but the other way, what I want to show in this book is uh, that's not universal. It's not happening in other places. Uh, and then using the case of China, I try to say that sometimes these two things can contradict each other. That is, when you have a strong ruler, you need to have a weak government. When you have a strong government, you need to have a weak ruler. So I think that's something that I really find very, very surprising in the Chinese story. And there are ways in which it recasts how we as scholars, those of us in the social sciences, especially, say, in history, political science, sociology, economics, should think about the state and sort of the idea, I guess, that there are other states, say, in Latin America or Africa or the Muslim world who have not developed yet may just well be on a different or alternative path of development so that uh, it changes our, our understanding and and it recasts the kind of theoretical understanding we should bring to bear, right? Yeah. So for a long time, policymakers, you know, for example, World Bank, IMF, U.S. government always thought that if those countries, you know, in the in Africa, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, if they can copy the political institutions from the West they will achieve the same goal. They will achieve the same level of development, right? And then the, you know, by political institutions, they mean representative institutions, you know, democracy, elections, political parties, so on and so forth. But we know that it's very difficult to transplant those institutions to the developing world. Uh, number one reason is the rulers in those countries are not interested in borrowing those institutions because those institutions will constrain their power, right? And then um, what I try to say in the last chapter of the book is we need to look at the path of state development in those countries by its own right. Uh, they are very different from Europe. And then maybe, you know, even in a thousand years, they won't become like a European country. So we should respect that. And then we should study those countries' past by their own right. Um, and then what I try to emphasize in this book is in addition to the political institutions, we also need to pay attention to the social structure, right? How the society is structured, what type of social networks their elites are embedded in, and then what type of incentives they're having in that type of network. So I think maybe we can have a more fruitful policy discussion um, when we shift our focus from simply political institutions and then to the society, to how the society is structured. So how do we extend your work here to the contemporary moment, to the to the current era in thinking about, well, let's begin with, with China and, and uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party today and Xi Jinping's seeming consolidation of, of, of power um, around him. Well, hopefully contemporary China is different from dynastic China. Uh, hopefully it's no longer a dynasty, but we never know. Um, and then China now has a modern party, which is the Chinese Communist Party, which played a very important role in regulating elite relationships, but also elite behavior. So um, when we think about contemporary China, it's very, very different from imperial China. But I still think since this is the same country we're looking at, and then China is a continuous civilization, I do think that we can learn a lot from Chinese history uh, to think about where China is headed 
And then one thing that um, is happening in China right now is we are seeing again a strong ruler. That is, we are seeing Xi Jinping, after taking power in 2012, has been able to centralize power, has been able to consolidate his power, has been able to make him make himself the core of the leadership, and then he has achieved dominance in the last 10 years. And then from Chinese history, we know what would happen when you have a strong ruler who can centralize power. That is, you know, from the 2,000 years of Chinese history, we know this is a bad thing for the country, right? When you have a strong ruler like what we had in the Qing Dynasty, what happened is the rulers will very strategically weaken the elites by fragmenting their networks, by breaking up their connections. And then we know, based on what happened in China, um, this is a bad outcome for the country because once the elites are fragmented, they lose their connections, they're no longer trust, they're no longer able to trust each other, they're no longer able to make policies to make the government stronger. So we have already seen some of that in today's China, you know, as a result of Xi's personalization, as a result of the centralization of power, uh, we already see some signs where Chinese elites, both at the local level, but also in the central government, are not able to coordinate with each other. You know, we see this during the very abrupt, unexpected ending of the zero COVID policy last year. And then it was not expected uh, by anyone. Uh, People were very surprised. Even hospitals were not prepared. And then you can really see the um, the sudden unexpected change as a result maybe of Xi Jinping's own willing without consultation with the elites. And then maybe the elites were not able to coordinate with each other to um, um, slow this down or, you know, make a more uh, well-thought-out policy, right? So I think we already see some consequences of the centralization of power by Xi Jinping. And then I worry that uh, this will lead to a long-term, both fiscal decline of the government, but also um, the decline of the Chinese economy in the next five or 10 years. Wow, that is really interesting. And it does indicate uh, to me, as we're talking now, just how powerful a framework you have brought to, to thinking through this. And it, and it is going to have real um, illuminating capacity for understanding the present day uh, dynamics. So let me thank you very much, Yu Huang. This has been a really fascinating conversation for me. And uh, let me commend to all of you listening, The Rise and Fall of Imperial China, The Social Origins of State Development, which is really a um, field redefining work. It's fantastic uh, when, when we see a scholar still very early uh, in, in your career taking such a, a strong position and doing it with such a clear authority. And uh, I want to congratulate you on, on this remarkable book. And thank it's you. It's my again. pleasure, Dean Bobo. It's my pleasure, Dean Bobo.